Pursue your purpose, speak your truth, deal with adult bullies, cope with failure, live beyond fear, establish values, set boundaries, move past trauma. These are all the themes in my Amazon bestseller, The Smart Girls Handbook. Tribers, get in close. For 15 years, I have been searching for a book that didn't exist. So I am thrilled to share that I decided to write it. The Smart Girls Handbook is available to buy now from wherever you get your books and also in Canada, the United States of America, New Zealand and Australia. Everything we do is a response to something you have asked for and girl have you been begging me for a book for years. Who is it for you? The reviews are outstanding, the press has been phenomenal and I am overwhelmed by the amazing support it has had already. This isn't my book but our book. I realised after my talks around the world women would be queuing for hours just to ask me one question. I didn't want them to just walk away but to have a tangible source to have forever and this is it. This is refreshing, never-before-read content that will inspire, motivate, empower, inform and entertain you. It's full of my personal development tips that have got me living as my most authentic and highest self, literally glowing from within. My most vulnerable moments and hilarious stories that will resonate with you. The Smart Girls Handbook is a celebration of womanhood and the book missing from your library. So grab your copy today, tag me on Instagram at smartgirltribe and I will send you an exclusive gift just to say thank you. Happy New Year, Tribers. I am thrilled to share our podcast today with the phenomenal Sarah Kubrick, also known as the Millennial Therapist. Sarah is a certified counsellor, current PhD candidate in psychotherapy sciences, has a weekly column in USA Today, is publishing a book, and did I mention she has over a million followers and has been featured in Grazia, Marie Claire, The Guardian, among many, many others. Having such a strong interest in therapy and trauma, it was a delight to sit down with such an expert to probe her with all of my pressing questions such as what language should we be using to set boundaries can we really heal from our childhood how do we strengthen self-love are expectations dangerous and so many more hi sarah it's great to have you on the podcast today could you just start off by explaining how you got into counseling please i think i always knew I wanted to be a therapist. It wasn't really, I I honestly can't think of a time when I didn't think that. So there wasn't a distinct moment where I was like, oh, mental health would be cool. I think given my history with various wars and immigration um, and just seeing people suffer with mental health around me, it was just kind of a given that I wanted to learn more. And I didn't know if I wanted to be a researcher or a therapist, but soon I think I kind of found my calling in trying to help rather than just explore as a researcher. Um, So it was very organic, very natural, and I don't think there was ever a distinct point Mm -hmm. um, that I can remember. (laughs) Your Instagram page is wildly popular. When did you really see it grow and how long have you been running it for? Yeah, so... I think when I seriously started writing it, as in like actually posting, was early 2019. Um, and so that will now be, yeah, three years, I guess, about. Um, and I think I saw it grow when I was like, wow, this might actually be something. <laughs> the end of the first year, I think my goal was, I don't know, to get 5,000 followers. And I think by my first year, I got significantly more than that. Um, And that was kind of an indication to me that 
maybe this is the type of advocacy and education that people actually want and that's needed. And so, um, yeah, it took about a year for it to fully take off, I would say. Are you conscious when you post now because you have such a large following or would you say that you're fairly relaxed about it and you have the same approach as you did way back when? I think it varies day by day. I think it's absolutely horrifying when um, when you think about how many people that genuinely is, how many arenas that would actually fill up. I think I have moments like that that do feel a bit overwhelming or when people stop me on the street or talk to me, then I, you know, it makes it really real that there's humans reading it. And I think that responsibility is with me regardless. I, I'm always very conscious that it's people's lives and that they're reading this. Uh, but I actually think I was a lot more scared at the start. Um, I remember when I hit 5,000, I was like, I don't know if I can do this. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of responsibility. But almost as the bigger it gets, you kind of lose perspective a little bit because one million, what does that even mean? I've never seen one million, <laughs> one million people in front of me. So I think that actually kind of helps. And um, I, you know, take it very seriously if I'm not um, feeling really comfortable or want to discuss my content with colleagues before I post it. I do. I always do with other therapists. So I don't think I ever stopped being responsible, but I think the nervousness of it has dissipated over the years just because, yeah, you get used to it and, um, the numbers just become numbers. You kind of lose track of what it means. And being the millennial therapist, would you say your content is predominantly for that age range? And if so, why do you think in particular they are so interested in therapy and personal development? Yeah, so I mean, I call myself the millennial therapist because I was a millennial. I didn't necessarily predict that millennials would like my content. <laughs> and, you know, I do have predominantly a millennial followings, which is really great because then we share so many experiences together. I'm a therapist, but I also know exactly what it's like to be in your age range and to have, you know, similar obstacles. And why do I think millennials... Uh, I think there's a big shift. I think millennials shifted a lot of things. Technology is one of them. I think mental health awareness is another. I think a lot of people were suffering and I think it was time to speak up. And I'm not really sure why we as a generation were the ones to do it, but I think most of us weren't raised um in a way that promoted mental health per se it's not like our parents had us out and always talked about our feelings and our needs and how to articulate boundaries um and so I think maybe it was something that we were lacking and that we really wanted maybe we didn't want to repeat patterns that our parents had um it can be so many reasons but again I always stay away from giving answers for the population of millennials because mm -hmm. I don't know <laughs> and I can't represent what everyone says but I think it was just a natural movement and um, it's something that spiraled in a good way. I completely understand that and being an expert in this field what do you think Sarah is a topic we should be exploring more for instance the inner child navigating that that's always a great place to start but is there anything for you that springs to mind i i think as millennials we also need to be careful not to pathologize absolutely everything i think we've also because we're talking about it and because it's become mainstream i think we just need to be careful to accept and encounter people's human experiences 
as experiences and not pathologize ourselves. So yes, maybe you've experienced adversity in your childhood. Does that mean that you have trauma? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Um, and so I think we've just started to generalize a lot. So I think um, teaching appropriate vocabulary is really important and giving people um, the space to share their experiences is huge, not just um, as a collective, but I think as a way for them to become more self-aware. I think self-awareness is the biggest thing that people need to be taught. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially as millennials, we are just so stimulated and busy all the time that I do find that in my clinical work, self-awareness is probably one of the first things that we teach. Um, and then you know, inner child work is a part of that most of the time. Um, So yeah, I would say self-awareness, it's underrated. For anyone listening in our audience who already journals, meditates, has positive affirmations, exercises Mm -hmm. regularly, and very much thinks that they are a very self-aware human being, is there anything else you think they could do to further Mm -hmm. their journey or development? Yeah, and I mean, maybe they just have all the skills and all it means is that they just keep doing it because I don't think we ever stop doing it. We never reach a pinnacle of self-awareness and then go, now I don't need to use these skills. But I think being aware of our emotions, you know, when you are doing anything, can you list three emotions that you feel in that in that instance? So I would say there's like different grades of self-awareness. So you'd have people who really struggle to identify any emotion or people who can only identify one big emotion, but can't really access the accompanying emotions. And so you can really practice and test yourself of like, how many emotions at a time can I experience? Can I diffuse like really big emotions by observing other supportive emotions or that are kind of playing into this? Um, I think our needs, our body language, I think there's just so much to observe and engage when it comes to ourselves that it's limitless. It's kind of like do a little exercise of, you know, paying attention of what thoughts come to mind most frequently throughout the day. Notice your body language when you're with certain people. Notice your emotions. Um, Notice any sensations. And I I think practices like that um, throughout the day are so powerful. Instead of journaling is fantastic, but most people just do it once a day. Instead of developing something called inner dialogue, which is a constant like conversation communication with yourself. And so I think once that becomes a habit, that's super powerful. That's ongoing self-awareness as much as possible uh, throughout the day. I love that. And becoming adults, do you think that we can really heal from our childhoods? Or do you think any childhood, not even trauma, but experience or any emotions that we've picked up maybe from our parents, you know, how they go into situations that then have almost rubbed off on us, do you think Mm -hmm. that we can really heal from all of that? Or are those experiences and approaches and attitudes always going to be there? That's a great question. And I think the answer is also what do you consider healing, Mm. right? For me, healing doesn't mean that you don't experience any pain, that you don't think about it ever, that it doesn't impact your worldview necessarily. I think healing for me is changing your relationship to your past. 
So rather it identifying you, consuming you, is there something maybe you can take a lesson from it? Maybe it can heighten your awareness, your resilience, your compassion. So I think really for me, healing is accepting and being aware of the painful past and the beautiful past or whatever it is, but then also just changing your attitude and your relationship to that past. So do I think people can heal? Yes, with that definition. Do I think people can heal and never again experience that pain or not let it impact them in any way in their present moment? Uh, No, probably not. Mm -hmm. No, I understand. And one thing that we all struggle with as we get older is self-love. So what would you say is self-love, Sarah? And how can we really strengthen it? Mm -hmm. I think self-love is... It's acknowledging your value, and I think it's twofold. So one is acknowledgement, and one is the way you treat yourself. Um, When you love somebody, you need to treat them a certain way for that to be depicted, to be presented to them. So someone can say, I really love you, and then if they swear at you, yell at you, don't show up on time, ignore you, you're not going to really feel the love. (laughs) And I think it's the same for us. We can you know, repeat all the affirmations in the world that we love ourselves, but we also need to prove to ourselves that that's true. So that's treating ourselves with respect, setting those boundaries, checking in, prioritizing our needs when we need to prioritize those needs. And so I think it, self-love is an action. Um, and I think that's the component that we sometimes miss out. We think that self-love is doing nice things for us, which it totally is. But self-love is also doing the really hard stuff that just needs to get done, like making those difficult decisions, having those awkward conversations. That's a way we can really show ourselves that we that we love who we are and that we respect who we are. Um, I guess the only other thing is I think we try to jump to self-love really quickly without you know, getting to know ourselves, respecting ourselves, liking ourselves, (laughs) accepting ourselves, right? So we try to really push through and go, no, I need to love myself. And if you think of yourself um, and the relationship you have with you kind of as a relationship you'd have with anybody else, it takes time. There's phases. There needs to be an establishment of trust and understanding before you can grow into love. And I think um, that's the same with us. What are some primary questions then we should be asking ourselves to deepen our self-help or self-love journey? Um, I guess two questions that just come to mind uh, is, who am I? Because you want to love someone and you want to help someone, but you can't do that unless you know who they are. So it's really important to know who you're loving, who you're for helping. <laughs> and then I think the second question would be, what do I need? And this is such a powerful, simple, but powerful question to ask yourself throughout. And so if you're on a journey, constantly seeing what your needs are is so important because, you know, we talk about, well, you talked about, um, inner child stuff, which I think plays out so often. And what I notice the most is emotional neglect within inner child wounds and that's our emotional 
emotional needs not being met. And as adults, we usually don't meet our own emotional needs or we parent ourselves the way that our parents parented us. So we need to change your parenting style. And part of that is being attuned and asking ourselves, okay, are your emotional needs being met? Or, you know, of course, physical needs and spiritual needs and whatever needs that you have. But I think emotional is something that often gets neglected. So I think constantly asking yourself, like, what do I need in this moment? And having a couple categories as checklists can be super helpful. So going through this question then, who am I, which is probably one of the most daunting questions a human could possibly ask themselves. If someone Mm -hmm. were to say to me, Scarlett, who are you? I would reply off the top of my head, I would like to think of myself as a very kind-hearted, self-aware, ambitious Aries. That's probably how I would sum myself up. Love it. Is that the kind of answer you would hope for as a therapist or do you think there are some issues I need to unpack there? I love it. So actually I'm coming out with a book that will be addressing this question, which I think is because it's so daunting for people. It's I think one of the biggest questions and probably one of the most universal questions. No, I do not see any red flags with your answer. (laughs) Um, I think that question can just become really vast I think that when we talk about our sense of self, we also need to talk about our sense of morality. So what are your values? What do you stand for? What what are your morals? What are your ethics? Um, Yes, we can talk about personality traits. Um, And it's a lot of who do you show up as? So saying I am something, it doesn't necessarily correlate to actually being it. Mm. Um, Carl Jung talks about that all the time. I think it was or I think he said like, we're not who we say we are. We are what we do, essentially. So just really trying to emphasize the point of, like, our actions would tell us a lot about who we actually are, not just who we want to become. Um, and then you also get to decide who you are. So if you tell me that you're a warm-hearted whatever and there is no actions to the contrary, you get to decide that, and I get to accept that. And so that's kind of cool, too. When you say... The next question would be, what do I need? Would you be able to give some examples? Because what would spring Mm -hmm. to my mind is I think the majority of people would reply to that and say love, that they need love. They need to feel appreciated because we're all Mm. humans. And I think we all crave that to some degree, whether that be from a place or a friend, you know, a person, our career. So what are some other things that you would want to hear from people when they're trying to answer that question? What do they need? I think you can maybe break it down into categories so that can help. Like, what do I need in this moment immediately? And what do I need physically? What do I need... Um, physically being like, I need to pee, I need to drink water, I need to eat, I need a hug, whatever. Um, Or what do I need sexually, or what do I need emotionally, or what do I need, um, you know, whatever, spiritually. So I, I think breaking it up is important. If your answer is love, fantastic, then you know what you need. And you can go, is there love that I should be showing, like, displaying or showing myself? Or am I trying to outsource self love? and get someone else to show me what it is like to be loved. I do not think the self-love can replace love from others. So I, I would not be like, you just need to love yourself and that's it. No, I don't think that's that's accurate. I think we need both. We just need to be really careful that 
if our need for love gets so strong and kind of obsessive, chances are that we're trying to outsource all the love and make it external. And so we're feeling really starved. Um, so seeing if there is kind of wiggle room of like, am I not showing myself self-love to the degree to which I can? And now I'm really uh, externally focused more so than probably necessary for me right now. I don't know if that answers your question. I think that's a I really good a tangent. <laughs> no, I think that's a really good answer. One thing I would love to get into as well is one thing that can be very difficult I have found is being on this journey through the podcast, I have become very interested in therapy, trauma boundaries in child healing, etc. So much so that I have done a lot of work myself. One thing that I have picked up on is it's really hard to communicate what you need with others. Even in a moment, if I'm feeling hurt or pain and I need reassurance from somebody else, or I even need a physical need, like a hug, for example, I can't bring myself to say to maybe a partner or someone I'm dating or even a family member, this is what I need. I find it hard to communicate that because they could think I'm quite strange just for announcing in the moment what I need so is there a way around that or do you have to give people the the space to respond to you how they want to respond to you rather than you almost project your needs onto them and demand them from them is that a quite a complicated question no I love that that's so good I mean what you're expressing here is it sounds like fear of vulnerability because vulnerability always comes with risk that the people will be off-put or unpleasantly surprised or they might reject your request Mm -hmm. and so um I'm not sure if you're asking there's a gentler way to do it um I think being direct is really great um I think maybe telling them hey right now I'm actually trying to work on having my needs met so maybe once in a while you're gonna hear something that sounds super explicit such as I really need a hug right now or can you call I need to talk and I just want to kind of give you a heads up of why I'm speaking to you so directly if that wasn't part of kind of the dialogue that you were having with that person so mm-hmm. you can always kind of prep them if you want to but I love what you said of offering that person the space to decide how they want to respond to you and I think you're changing the dynamic and so you need to also be gracious and compassionate and a bit patient of how they're going to now engage with the new dynamic Um, And people that refuse to, for example, fulfill your needs, um, and that becomes a pattern, then that can be an indication that maybe they're not the right fit or someone that should be serving that purpose in your life at this time. And another thing that I want... If I didn't answer your question fully, let me know. (laughs) That absolutely answers my question because I would rather be direct, and this has maybe come in the past few years, again, through the podcast, I've understood that I have to be very clear about what I need and how to meet my personal needs but then being on the receiving end one thing that can be quite hard that I've found through friends is I've never had anybody say to me Scarlett you know what I have this boundary this relationship's crossing this boundary I've never actually had a conversation with a friend no one's come to me and said I'm setting this boundary with you but I have heard from friends who have spoken to other friends who have needed to set a boundary with them and I would like to know as friends or even as partners 
What is the best way to respond to somebody saying, hey, I need to set this boundary because it can very often when you hear that it can come across as quite selfish. Someone saying to you, look, I'm putting my need first. I'm putting this before people pleasing, before maybe your needs, your desires, your expectations, again, is a huge one. So what is a nice way that you can respond to somebody setting a boundary with you? I think that the bottom line is we need to respect people's boundaries. But that means that doesn't mean we need to necessarily engage in that relationship the same way so you can go you know what I totally hear you and I respect your boundary and I'm gonna watch out from now on so it could be as simple as that if you generally go oh okay I get that but if you're hurt you can also say I respect your boundary and I'm gonna do my best not to cross it but I also want you to know or and I also want you to know that this is what it's triggering within me and these are my concerns And maybe, depending how close you are to the person, you can say, if you feel comfortable, I would love to hear a bit more of maybe your explanation or how you got to this point. I know we're always like, you don't owe anyone an explanation. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's necessarily true. And I mean, that's true if you don't care about preserving that relationship. But at some point, we might have to explain like, hey, I've really struggled with boundaries. Um, I really feel like I need this. I know it comes off selfish or it doesn't meet your expectation. And so I think there has to be um, togetherness in this transition. And I think it's good to set your um, boundary and it's good to respect someone else's boundary, but it doesn't always mean that you can't express how that's impacting you or making you feel. Mm-hmm. So depending on how safe you feel in that relationship, I do think that I'm saying, you know what, I respect that. I won't do it again. But I, And I also want you to know this is what's you know, it's bringing up in me or how I might change our relationship. And not in a manipulative way, but just in a very transparent, honest kind of way. One thing I would love to ask as well is we've touched on our relationships with others. And I want to dive in deeper here, but also talk a little bit about the relationships we have with ourselves. Because again, being fairly self-aware, I have found myself having conversations where I have needed to set boundaries with family members, with friends, I have had to cut out some people from my life. I had very, very toxic relationships and I needed, after trying to set boundaries that didn't really go anywhere, I then had to cut them out of my life. And I do have very honest conversations with people and I say, you know what, I'd rather, even recently I said to a friend, I'd rather you didn't bring up this kind of language around me because it's actually very triggering for me and they responded in a very positive way however I have also Sarah never felt more narcissistic (laughs) and almost really almost selfish because I'm walking around the planet having these conversations with people that oh this is triggering me I'm setting this boundary can you not use this language around me and I'm walking around (laughs) feeling very entitled (laughs) And I would love your expert advice on how you manage that. Because equally on the flip side, I'm constantly told how much of a people pleaser I am and how giving I am. And I do have fairly loose boundaries, which is a problem. But even setting the tiniest, tiniest of boundary, I'm feeling very much. And I do think it goes back, you know, it really comes down to being a woman maybe more so than a man being a people pleaser wanting to please everyone etc so do you have any advice for any women out there who have similar to me where 
we're, we are still people pleasers and we are giving as much as we can. But even when we take the tiniest of crumbs for ourselves, we then feel awful and very narcissistic. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. And sometimes we get, can I say shit? On, of course. Shit for it. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, and I think it's because society wasn't meant to, society wasn't built for healthy boundaries. Like, it, it, you know, it wasn't built for equality for women. It wasn't, we live in a society that's not necessarily promoting your mental health or your boundary setting or your healing journey. I, I really, I mean, I'd love to not be so cynical, but I, I think it's, uh, the way our society functions is quite the opposite. And it's really, really hard to um, subdue or control a woman who stands up for herself. And that's not, let's take away gender, um, it's really difficult to do that to any person that sees their own value and worth and stands up for themselves. And that's really problematic for a society. Um, so I just think there's a bit of a, a bigger picture here where I think we weren't taught to because it didn't really fit the norm ever. And I think we also saw our parents not do it because it wasn't the norm then either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I think until the norm changes or, you know, the, the the way our society functions changes we're we're always going to struggle a little bit because someone who sets boundaries is considered selfish and I know I posted so many times about boundaries and sometimes I get just the most upset comments it's like how dare you say this to somebody and and people just react really really strongly and maybe because we all have a sense of entitlement so when someone says no we're really upset I think there are just too many reasons as to why we feel the way we feel Uh, but I think the biggest one is probably we weren't taught that it was okay many of us grew up in families where setting boundaries probably wasn't a huge thing or kids weren't really allowed to set boundaries and maybe we didn't say our parents set boundaries and so um and when we did maybe it was considered culturally selfish or whatever you know coming from a Serbian background there were plenty of boundaries I couldn't set a because I was a woman very Mm -hmm. explicitly but also because they were considered selfish and not you know proper and um i look at that and i go okay so i think we all have a journey of kind of discovering where this narrative around boundaries comes from and living in the discomfort of doing something very different and probably something that's not accepted by everybody Mm. and is there anything for anyone who is in a similar position to me that we can tell ourselves or remind ourselves or even do any tangible actions to almost make ourselves feel better and perhaps even be more gentle with ourselves because as I said even when I take the tiniest of crumbs for myself I walk away feeling very entitled and it's not a nice feeling. I mean you can remind yourself that you are deserving of these things that you're not imposing on anybody that you're not taking away anything from anyone and that it's okay to have expectations of how you're going to be treated Um, and what sort of spaces you want to exist in. I think that can be super helpful. But honestly, I think some of the 
the discomfort is just going to be practice or maybe discomfort can also be a sign for you that you're growing so instead of feeling uncomfortable or entitled you can go oh this is actually kind of a flag that I am also growing now this can be taken out of context and people people can be like Sarah's teaching people to be entitled that's mm -hmm. not what I mean but in this particular context maybe when you go I'm uncomfortable you go hey I'm, I'm growing maybe you can equate it to growth mm -hmm. and then equally kind of on the same topic as humans we naturally make mistakes lack of judgment errors say things we wish we didn't say do things we wish we didn't do in those moments as self-aware conscious beings it's very easy to say oh just tell yourself that you made a mistake and you're human and it's fine but you can almost feel worse because you feel, you know what, I should have known better. So in those moments, what can we say to mm. ourselves or equally, what can we do then to make ourselves feel better? Again, it depends what you mean by feel better. Sometimes we have to acknowledge that we really screwed up and forgive ourselves for that and accept the humanity of that and understand that we're not going to feel better for a little while because... You know, when you screw up, that's just a natural consequence of not immediately feeling better. So there's a mm -hmm. bit of that acceptance. But I think it's also acknowledging that with the knowledge you had then, that's the best you could do. And I find so much grace and compassion in that statement of you did your best. In retrospect, it's always easy to go, well, it wasn't good enough <laughs> or it wasn't the right thing. But I think understanding your growth and that you now learn something, I think what comforts me the most from mistakes is the fact that I now have knowledge and experience that I didn't have before. And hopefully the hope that I won't repeat the same mistake again. Um, and, you know, as you say, you can say I'm human and maybe that'll work for you. Maybe that won't, but just understanding that you took something really valuable can sometimes help you kind of keep going instead of dwelling in the mistake itself. What is something we can maybe say to people who like to remind us of our mistakes, no matter how small, no matter how big, you know, I know friends who have made really horrible mistakes and ghastly mistakes that they feel terrible for. I have known people who have cheated in previous relationships and then there are people around them who will make snide comments or jokes about it so many years later no matter how many times they've asked them not to because every time they're reminded it triggers something inside them so is there anything that that person can say to a family member or friend to almost say look can you stop bringing it up <laughs> yeah no I mean that's perfect <laughs> mm -hmm. I think again it's alluding to your discomfort is not the same as going hey when you make a joke about x y or z I feel such and such and or it really triggers me or it makes me really not like myself and to be quite honest it makes me not want to be around you <laughs> for mm -hmm. that reason so I, I really need you to stop and if this person chooses not to and they choose to use your pain as a punchline then I think that's a really important moment to kind of stop and go okay why would I be in a relationship with someone who would violate and, and hurt me this way, violate mm -hmm. my boundaries and hurt me in this way. And 
Um, I think sometimes the ultimate boundary is kind of walking away or having distance from that person. If you were already explicit enough and gave them, you know, as many opportunities as you choose. But I think with things like that, we have to be really, really candid. I sometimes think that people also make jokes about things that make them uncomfortable or trigger them. Mm. And so it's like they're real processing it, or maybe, you know, they were cheated on. Now they see someone else who is cheated. So now their frustration is being projected on that person. So there's often a lot going on for someone who would choose to use someone's pain as a punchline or someone's mistake as a punchline. But that's not really, you know, your problem. All you can do is maybe bring it to their awareness that they're doing it. They might not be aware, set a boundary and then take it from there. And if, if it doesn't change and it still hurts you, maybe your next boundary is just kind of stepping back. Mm-hmm. And could you maybe discuss the relationship between, I'd love to know if there is one between personal development or self-help and self-sabotage? I know so many people or I have so many people around me who are incredibly self-aware, yet because they're almost so self-aware about how they're going to project, how they're going to react, the risks they that they should or should not be taking, it almost takes a little bit away from living because they've gone so far the other way that they're now subconsciously fearful of just making a mistake going after the wrong person, saying the wrong thing, etc., that they are almost trapping themselves in a cage of self-awareness. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. Um, so I think self-awareness without self-trust is maybe what would lead to that. Mm-hmm. For they're very aware of their tendencies and their mistakes and the way they're thinking, but they don't trust themselves to do something different from what they've done in the past or that whatever they decide to do is going to be okay or to trust that they can sense alignment or authenticity. And so I think that's often when it occurs. I I think self-awareness with self-trust would probably lead to freedom and to genuinely experiencing life. Um, When self-awareness becomes your cage, there's something else definitely going on. And self-awareness, I mean, it's kind of what happens as you're living. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So if you stop living, are you actually self-aware in that moment? Or what's actually happening for you? Are you replaying? Are you analyzing your past self? So I think, yeah, but I I would say... um, self-sabotage that is definitely self-sabotage and to me that's self-sabotage because you don't trust yourself Mm -hmm. to actually live I love that and what do you think can cause self-sabotaging other than lack of self-trust not believing that we deserve better Um, Mm. having caretakers model to us self-sabotage um those are three I can think of off the top. Can of we? Head. I'm sure there's. I actually had a post that said like seven reasons we self sabotage. <laughs> Can't remember the other four. <laughs> Can we talk about caretakers? You mentioned caretakers a bit, which is a very interesting concept. Could you explain that to our audience? 
Yeah, so I think sometimes I just use that word um, instead of parents because some people might mm-hmm. not feel like they had parents or that the people that raised them were their biological parents or whatever the complicated relationship might be. Mm-hmm. Um, or So I just use caretakers to imply anyone who raised us or developmentally was around us during that time um, who, you know, who modeled behaviors to us um, who gave us rules and expectations and, and standards as, as kids as we were developing. So that's kind of what I meant by caretakers. As we go on through our self-healing, self-development or personal development journey, do you think our intuition gets stronger? Or do you think sometimes there's a possibility that we start ignoring our intuition because we're trying to overanalyze what we should be doing, the boundary we should be setting, the expectation we should be managing, et cetera, et cetera. Or do you think naturally, actually, 100% of the time, as you heal, your intuition is going to get a lot stronger? I would see healing as a lifestyle. I don't think, I think it's fluid. It's a lifestyle. It's you as you heal your intuition gets stronger you start to trust yourself more um it doesn't mean that you won't analyze but i think people who are still trapped in the analysis part of it might be struggling from anxiety might be struggling from other things so i feel like if you if you know if you are someone who is really caught up in in being scared to do the wrong thing or your intuition takes a backseat to the analyzing of like, am I doing all the right things when it comes to mental health? Like, am I checking all the boxes? Then I would say maybe there's something else that you haven't looked at. Um, I don't think mental health is a checkbox and I don't think there's a bunch of checklists and I don't think there's a necessarily a wrong and a right way to live your life. I, I think it's it's experiencing it it's being honest with yourself as you experience it it's doing the things that you believe will nurture you why are you setting a boundary is it because you learned about boundaries and now you're setting a boundary or ultimately is it because you knew you wanted to treat yourself a certain way or experience something or not experience something and so it just came out as an extension of who you are mm-hmm. so i think as we start to kind of integrate these concepts, um, they become more free-flowing and they become more instinctual, they become more habitual um, in a good way so that we're not constantly like, pausing there and being like, I'm not saying we should ever not have any awareness and just fly with it, but I do think that that, that part, it's kind of like when you're first riding a bike, you're very conscious of like having your balance and mm-hmm. the left and then right and then what's happening with your handlebars. But once you've done it so many times, it becomes easier you're still doing the same thing you're still paying attention but sometimes you drive home and you're like how did I get here but it doesn't mean that you didn't see the red light and you didn't stop Mm -hmm. so I think it does become more of a process of who we are rather than just like an anxiety inducing thing of like oh my god there's so many ways to screw up I hope I don't Mm -hmm. no I understand that and do you think we should always follow our intuition and the reason why I bring this up is because for a lot of healers They go on this healing journey, they get the therapy, they understand, they do all of the work and they have all of the feels and then they have to make some big decisions. I break up with the person that they're with, 
file for that divorce, leave that job, cut off a parent, etc. There is going to be a big part of you that thinks, you know what, I may have done all of the healing, but that is so going to fundamentally hurt somebody else. It might not be the right thing to do. Do you think even in those, if you've got to the point where you have kind of done a 360 or had a 360 experience on this healing journey, do you think you should just always follow your intuition because you fundamentally know what's best for you or do you think even sometimes you have to put situations before your healing process okay so there's multiple things i can say about that one context always matters Mm. um does it i think it matters more in how you approach it rather than do you approach it i think if you feel like it's really damaging for your mental health you probably still have to, or for yourself, like you might feel like you still have to, but the context will dictate maybe how you do it. Um, I don't think we should ever make decisions based on one thing. So this is also, you know, just a personal kind of um, belief of we're holistic beings. So really paying attention, like, yes, your intuition is part of that, but you also have a brain. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're also a logical human being. You also have your body that gives you a bunch of cues of how you feel around that person and what you need. And so I think going like my intuition is the only thing I need to make a decision. I'm not one of those people that necessarily believes that. I think that considering we're very holistic individuals and considering that you would have to be really freaking sure that it was your intuition. And I think, you know, we all misinterpret ourselves sometimes. Uh, But if you're feeling that confident, maybe I would just say, you know, uh, check in with your logic a little bit, check in with your thoughts, check in with your body and check in with your emotions and your intuition and then see kind of where where it takes you. Being a therapist, Sarah, I would love to ask you, would you, or do you, not even would you advise others, but do you tend to listen to your body more than your brain or being a therapist? Do you tend to be more logical when it comes to problems and your own trauma as opposed to your body? Because I've spoken to a lot of holistic healers if you like and they're very much like we are made up of 75% of water and we've got the moon and we have our chakras and we have the energy but then equally being a logical person and so interested in therapy (laughs) I'm very divided and I would love to know your opinion yeah that's cool um I don't know anything about chakras or the moon and and um all that crystal stuff I really don't I know so many of my friends are super into it I have to say I don't know much about it um I my personal journey consisted of going from being really cognitive to more emotionally in tuned and so I would say I really pay attention to my feelings um I I do think I'm quite an intuitive person but I really pay attention to my feelings and then probably in my body and then my thoughts. But I think that changes. I try to make them quite balanced if I can. But because I used to have the tendency to be quite cognitive, I think I now really focus on that emotional self. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I'm making my personal decisions, I think the first thing that really becomes obvious to me are my emotions. Yeah. Okay. And then another interesting... I think my... I'll feel yeah. that way. <laughs> And then another interesting question, do you think having expectations is positive? And the reason why I ask is because this comes up when I have conversations about therapy a lot. I personally think expectations are good. There is an element 
of you have to have certain expectations from siblings, parents, friends, a partner, etc. Not excessive, but some in place because that makes it a healthy relationship. But equally, I have read a lot of material that says you will be happy when you no longer have expectations and you just give everyone the space to be exactly how they wish mm-hmm. to be. And in my experience, in my experience, having no expectations actually leads to a loss of pain and hurt and disappointment. So I'd love to know your opinion there. Really throwing me under the bus here. Um, <laughs> it, there's a huge divide in in therapists about this, especially on Instagram. I agree with you. Um, I think we should have expectations. I think, um, I mean, some people call them standards and that makes them feel better. I don't know. But mm-hmm. I think that uh, in my research, um, in my master's back in the day, I remember one woman saying the relationship truly ended when I stopped having expectations from this person. Um, she, she wanted nothing from them. She didn't expect to get anything. So there was nothing there. And I, that always kind of stood with me. What an, what an interesting way to phrase the, the death of her relationship. I think these expectations need to be realistic. These expectations are not meant to control mold make this person be everything you need them to be but I think expecting how you want to be treated or expecting how the relation like the dynamic of the relationships you want to be in um is good Mm -hmm. (laughs) I like so tentative here but I I think we need to know what to expect and what we want to tolerate or what we want to settle for or what how we want to be treated I mean you know it helps us kind of know how to set those boundaries as well of I this is what I expect for myself so you set a boundary Mm. but also like this is what I expect from the person that I want to share my life with or be friends with Um, and again I think why people shy away from me is because so many times it's not realistic Um, and you know therapists would like screw expectations but then I'm like well of course they need to be respectful and kind and blah 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 and like little parentheses you're like okay but then don't say screw expectations because you just said the expectation mm-hmm. is that they will be respectful and kind so I don't I don't know if anyone can say like don't expect to be treated like a human being like don't even have that expectation now should you have an expectation of who they become and who mm-hmm. they want to be themselves no that's not your business but do you get to expect how you're treated? And I think you should have some standards. That's just my personal opinion that mm-hmm. I'm going to get some emails for after this podcast. <laughs> because we have talked about ourselves in relationship with others, friends, family members, and with partners, I would love to know some healthy expectations you would say for our audience that they can set with their partners if someone was listening to this and they thought you know what I have been living thinking expectations are bad I want to set some healthy expectations could you just throw in a couple of examples please okay um I I expect people to treat me with respect I expect people to honor my boundaries Mm -hmm. um you know, and maybe that's a really good cop-out answer of I expect people to respect my boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because that's that's an extension of who I am. That's the blueprint for the relationship. That's how I'm going to keep myself safe and honor these relationships. And so that's kind of what I expect from the other person. Um, you know, some people feel comfortable saying I expect honesty. Mm. Um, I think that's a good one. Um, and I think everyone has expectations. We have these implicit and explicit contracts. Explicit is things you've talked about, like I expect you not to cheat on me or I, you know, expect us now to be exclusive. And then there's like the implicit ones of like, I expect you not to drink alone with another girl. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But you didn't say that. You said, you know, I expect you not to cheat on me. And for you, that was a big umbrella. And I think a lot of things go um, unsaid. And this is where a lot of conflict emerges. But I think having expectations and sharing them can be a really healthy way to establish these relational contracts that we all have you can't avoid it because each person expects the other to partake in this relationship of course and I also end the podcast with two questions Sarah the first being what is your favorite quote or the mantra you live by my quotes change all the time um and a mantra I think for me it's it's all about I, I don't know how to summarize it. I think it's about, I, I don't want to use the word alignment because I feel like that word really means so many different things from like healers to therapists to psychiatrists. It's just mm-hmm. very, very different. But I, I, I think for me, it's really paying attention to the relationship I have with myself. And so um, I guess my mantra would be, I don't know, experience life and experience yourself. And yeah find find your meaning and call yeah that's that's it I think it just really embracing the experience of what it means to be human um to me is the most important thing I think that's incredibly powerful because bringing together everything we have said we have talked about being human making mistakes going through trauma parents relationships things like this I think that's exactly it just to remember that on this healing journey as you go through personal development just be aware that you are experiencing or you have the opportunity just being on the planet to experience life fully as a human being and you're worthy of experiencing everything and even the tough stuff too whether that be heartbreak because sometimes that's all the greatest love stories can bring So I think that's incredibly powerful. I think that's a great mantra to have. What books, Sarah, would you recommend to our audience? And I can only imagine that you have a library of books to recommend to us. (laughs) So please share any material, content or books because I cannot wait to dive into everything you're about to recommend to me. Oh, that's so sweet. Okay, no pressure. Um, so I really love authors that write about these human experiences and self-growth and these serious topics in a not necessarily self-help sort of format. Um, I like it when it's more experiential. So for example, Herman Hess, I absolutely love him. Um, he talks about authenticity and self-discovery 
in novels. So uh, Siddhartha is a great one. Damien is another really good one. It's probably one of my favorite books. Um, Dostoevsky, I love. I know it's not people's thing, so I'm not going to suggest it too much. Now, if you want to think about psychiatrists or psychologists that are also all existentialists, by the way, so I'm super biased here. Um, Irvin Yalom is absolutely amazing. Um, and then I also love Victor Frankl. So, um, and search for meaning is such a good gateway book into figuring out why you're alive. <laughs> if you're ever really curious of like, I think the two big existential questions are always, who am I and why am I here? And I think that that second question is really targeted with his book. Um, so those are kind of several authors that I can offer off the top of my head. When is your book out? It's a really good question. Uh, <laughs> I am not 100% sure. Um, as of now, I think either end of next year or beginning of 2023. I'm really, really excited about it. I'm in the process of writing it right now, and I I hope people enjoy it. <laughs> I'm so excited. That was um, meant to be a pitch. That's me just, like, literally writing about it, being like, I hope someone finds this interesting. <laughs> no, completely. I think it's been... This has been such an authentic, grounding conversation because navigating healing can be very lonely because even when you're surrounded by like-minded individuals people who think similarly it's a very lonely experience you are going through your own past you're analyzing where you want your future to go who you want in it who you want to be it's very it can be incredibly lonely so to have such an authentic grounding conversation almost concluding you know feel everything and be a full human Mm -hmm. I think that's just such a beautiful takeaway today so I just want to thank you for your advice and for your vulnerability it's been a beautiful conversation and I'm so happy to have finally met you Sarah Oh my God, I'm so, so happy we got to chat. No, thank you for asking such wonderful questions and for having this amazing platform where people can share experiences and and connect with one another, even just through stories, even if they never meet. And I, I think it's, it's so amazing and so needed in the world and I feel super honored that you invited me. Thank you for listening to the Smart Girl Tribe podcast. I am your host, Scarlett B. Clark, award-winning founder and CEO of Smart Girl Tribe, the UK's number one female empowerment organization, host of this top-rated podcast, the Smart Girl Tribe podcast, and author. You are my community, my family, so come and follow along for more female empowerment and personal development in our private Facebook group, the Smart Girl Tribe Society, or on Twitter or Instagram at Smart Girl Tribe.